Welcome to Real Talk, Real Estate Discussions with Andrew Kirsch. In each episode, Andrew interviews industry leaders. We'll hear their real-time opinions on today's market, their background and unique career highlights, and guidance for newcomers into the industry. You can find this show at skalarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Real Talk, Andrew Kirsch. Episode 43 of Real Talk. So we're continuing our multifamily discussion. And over the last couple of weeks, anecdotally, uh, clients have told me they have made more offers in the first couple months of the year than they have all of last year. So certainly a positive sign. However, the bid ask spread is still far apart. Buyers seemingly want uh, a six cap or greater uh, and sellers aren't there. So there's about a, you know, depending on the market, it looks like a 50 basis point spread, uh, maybe wider, maybe narrower, depending on the market. You know, there are a couple of new deals that we've gotten under contract recently. Um, uh, but the fact that our clients are indicating that they're putting in more offers and that they didn't put in almost any offers last year is, is a positive sign. So continuing that multifamily theme for one more show, um, I've got Bob Hart on today, the founder and CEO of True America Multifamily, one of the top 25 owners of multifamily in the United States. They've got 16 billion under management, 60,000 units. Uh, it's a really uh, interesting discussion that I had with Bob. I've known Bob uh, since the beginning days of True America, uh, when he was in a modest office uh, in the Valley office of Pulvida. Uh, I remember like it was yesterday working on their first deal, uh, Sky Apartments, uh, uh, a couple hundred unit uh, forward construction deal in Orange County. And now, gosh, 60,000 units and 16 billion under management. And I've been uh, part of the uh, extended family of True America for uh, uh for the duration of uh of the company uh which is now going on their 11th year uh i hope you enjoy my conversation with bob hart hello welcome to another edition of real talk it's a real honor to be with my good friend bob hart founder president ceo of true america bob thanks for having me in your office and thanks for coming on the show well you know it's good to actually see you andrew because we talk a lot and we do a lot of work together, but it's nice to actually see you. I uh, I appreciate that in this post-COVID world. I mean, even my podcast, most of my podcasts have been remote. And when I asked you, hey, we're literally across the street from each other, I'll come on over and let's just have a conversation. So I think more people need, need to do that and just have face-to-face -face conversations. I, I completely agree. And uh, I think the work from home COVID period kind of took some of that away. Yeah, you can't you can't replicate just face to face conversations that um, an organic conversation that things can come up. I, I was at NMHC uh, a week or two ago and and just the the human interaction, even if it's for five, 10 minutes of being in a close proximity to each other is infinitely more valuable than than having a, an hour long Zoom conversation. I think so. 
because you can sense people's body language, sense their feelings better, and just be more in tune with the moment. So now I can sense if you're not happy with my questions. That's that right. We're, that we're together. But I want to get, I mean, you're, you're a legend in our industry, a legend in our community in LA. And I want to talk about, I mean, so many people will, will, will gain knowledge and experience about your background, but you know, these are interesting times, uh, not just in the multifamily business, but in real estate in general. So I wanted to just start off as we sit here today in February, uh, of 24, what is just your perception of the market specifically in multifamily? Okay. Well, What's happened is there's been a very abrupt um, drop off in transaction activity, which really was like a big bang going off at a party saying, everybody get out of here. <laughs> and that party had been going on for 13 years, really very long time mm -hmm. since the end of the great financial crisis. So what's happened is been very sudden and is really push the herd back into the corral. And as a result, there's no elasticity in the market. We really don't even know what appraisals really mean right now because there's just not enough comps. So as a result, people are hunkered down. Um, the good news is the US economy is doing well. There's a lot of uninvested equity that's sitting on the sidelines and interest rates and inflation are coming down. So, this period of, I'm going to call it transactional malaise yeah. and higher interest rates is temporary. And so every, every real estate cycle and every economic cycle has a different set of consequences. I've been through three or four over my career and they all play out a little bit differently for different reasons. And fortunately this one, we're blessed with a, a very good economy. Uh, we just can't transact, make capital investments right now because of the upside down nature of leverage. So what do you think it's going to take for the market to dethaw? And I'm not saying let's get back to a 2021 market where probably not realistic. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't real. That wasn't real. Right. Yeah. So how about a pre COVID transactional market a 2018, 2019 healthy, a healthy number of deals. Yeah. Um, what, what do you want to see before you go back in? Yeah. Well, we're in. We never leave. Sure. You're a deal chunky. You're in. We're, we're in all the when time. I mean, we're in it at a different pace. Sure. Um, you know, truth is, last year was uh, not a positive growth year for us. The first time in 10 years where we actually sold more real estate than we purchased. Mm -hmm. um, but that's good. That was healthy. We maintained discipline. Uh, we didn't buy with negative leverage. We didn't buy for the sake of buying. And we hunkered down and focused on operations and managing our debt and and our people. So um, these times are good. They sometimes they can be cathartic and cause you to really examine your business. But I think you asked me what is going to take to to move move the mountain. I think it's going to take a, a a slight rise in cap rates to normalization, which multifamily was trading at one point sub four, but that was just not and you know doesn't measure. The, the riskless return of, of making a real estate investment. Now, when you can invest in a treasury bill at five something, yeah. you certainly wouldn't buy a piece of real estate at four something unless it had so much upside potential that was because the rents are not, you know, where they should be. 
So I think interest rates are going to have to normalize. We're going to have to see the 10-year come down below four. Whether it's going to come down to three, we'll find out. But it may not. It feels like it's going to be higher for longer based on how the Fed's behaving. Mm -hmm. And cap rates are going to have to adjust upward. I think people will buy on the margin between interest rates and cap rates. But I think they're still going to be hesitant to buy on what I'll call negative leverage. This may be a good segue to how you got into the business, but it you transacted, I, I assume, in a market where the 10-year treasury was north of five, north of six, yeah. and you did deals. Why were you able to do deals in that market? But in today's market, everyone freaked out when the 10-year got to five. We're now trading in the low fours. It dipped below four yeah. a, a few weeks ago, and the market has stalled. Well... It, the, the deleveraging effect of, of real estate um, for particularly institutional investors exacerbates that. So if you were borrowing 20 years ago at 80% and you had a little bit of negative leverage and you were still buying at a better cap rate, you were buying maybe in those days as high as seven. Yeah, I think I bought my, from like an early deal when I was at Kennedy Wilson in the early 2000s might have been an eight cap in play no ray of all places mm -hmm. wow so but interest rates i remember getting the financing from uh i think it was merrill at libor which was at uh six plus 300 so it was like a nine percent loan yeah look different times different times still made money sure it's all about the it's all about the consumer side though we're very fortunate multi unlike office and some other areas where the the consumption side of housing is very robust and still largely undersupplied with a few exceptions so you mentioned office um and we i know you transact specifically and solely in 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 housing um you know we handle deals across product type yeah and the last several months uh Office has been one of our most active product types because lenders have just, they've thrown in the towel. Borrowers right. are thrown in the towel, I should say. Lenders have aggressively exercised their remedies. Yeah. Um, loan acquisitions, foreclosures, deed and lose, uh, loans that you could buy pennies on the dollar. We're not seeing that in multi. We're seeing a daily conversation with clients of mine would be, Andrew, I've got a, a variable interest rate loan. My rate cap has expired or about to expire. The maturity date may still have another 12 months. Uh, I want to talk to my lender. My lender's not even calling me back. Uh, what should I do? Uh, lenders aren't aggressively pursuing remedies. It just seems like everyone is stuck in the mud. I mean, what, what recommendations do you have to borrowers who have floating interest rate debt? Um, their values have come down and they're unsure how to yeah. communicate with their lender. Um, well, that, that's a common problem because they never got to know their lender. Mm -hmm. They just got the money. Yeah. And at True America, we transact in relationship capital. We know the people we do business with. And if you want to be effective in a downtime, just like in a, in a positive time, you know, principals, brokers, and where deal comes from, in not so good times, we were worrying about debt, 
you've got to treat your lender the same way. And it can't be sudden. It can't be uh, like a gunshot wedding. It, it's got to be gradual over time because lenders don't like to move move quickly and have to feel the sincerity and the necessity to work with you. I think all lenders uh, are workable. Now, they may not be workable to the extent you need them, but you can certainly make headway. A lot of the debt coverage ratio tests, maturity tests, rate cap, uh, you know, enhancement type tests that they require and reserves. Although they're embedded in the documents, the covenants, the conditions are negotiable if you present things properly and you have a real need. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned relationships yeah. and it, it, it's a cliche, but yet it's so true. And, um, well, it's taken for granted, right? People take, I think in the, in the world we traffic in, whether it's real estate or in general, everything moves very quickly. Everything's done with the, either the internet or quick, quick movements of, of both capital and documentation. Remember when you probably first started as an attorney, man, you know, I'm not trying to date you, but you were using faxes and FedExes to move documents. Transactions happen at lightning speed, which then sometimes shortens, I would call it the relationship part of it as well. Yeah. And so people just move on to the next thing. So you probably aren't going to, maybe you will remember this, but talking about relationships, the first time that we worked on a deal, it was almost 10 years ago. I think it may have been one of your first deals at True America, um, Sky down in Laguna Niguel. Yes. And um, it was right after uh, our kids, uh, or I didn't have, I think I had one, a, a baby. We were just coming back from Hawaii and I got a call from Noah Hawkman, um, who works with you. And he said, we just got the PSA. And Bob and I would like to meet with you to go over it. And I said, you want to meet in person? He said, yeah, come over to our office in, in Sherman Oaks. Right? Yeah, oh, God. Um, yes. uh, office of Hulvada. Yeah, those and, were humbler times. <laughs> and let's go over the PSA in person. Right. Um, I don't think I have done that um, other than with you. And it, yeah. really, it really showed of how you value just that personal relationship and well it's the personal relationship and the personal dynamic whether you're negotiating a, a lease for a restaurant or you're negotiating a psa i believe in being front and center with the process i always encourage my people to build a contact sheet of everybody involved don't just rely on the lawyers get involved as principals together mm -hmm. it's amazing what you can accomplish if you talk everything through it's true but again i think Society, you know, between all the impetus towards social media and immediacy of responses and everything from slacking, and I don't even know all these terms, okay? <laughs> you, we've lost a little bit of that visceral person-to-person -person contact. And this is a relationship business. It's a people business. Yeah. You may be processing the legal aspect, and I may be processing the deal, but we're working on a common cause together that involves many, many people. And real estate deals create their own economy. Yeah. They create their own GDP. No, absolutely. And, you know, going back to 2021, uh, the deal frenzy, it was so frenetic that as lawyers and you as a principal, if we, if we didn't turn a PSA within 24, 36 hours, they go to the next 
uh, the next buyer. It was almost impossible to build that relationship unless if you had the pre-existing relationships. It was a very challenging environment to transact in. There were a lot of transactions, but it wasn't it wasn't done in a in a in a personal way. Right. I, I agree. So we'll see if we. So this has slowed everything down. I think people are more reflective. Um, I think some of the younger people that haven't been through a cycle like this are quickly figuring out they need to have solid relationships with their equity partners, with their lenders, with their attorneys and everybody in their circle to come together based on whatever the need is at the time. And so when you sit on, you're looking at your portfolio and you're reflecting um, how, you know, in terms of long, long, uh, longer term debt versus the short term debt that a lot of folks got in 21 and 22. How's the, the state of the portfolio of, of True America? Uh, I think it's pretty good. Uh, we don't really have too many of these issues. We have a handful. Um, we were pretty astute in when we did use variable rate debt, we made sure it had enough term to it and we made sure there was a, a deep enough protective hedge on it. Very few of our deals are unhedged or have wide hedges. So on the variable side, which is probably 40 or 50 percent of what we do, we plan for it as much as we can. Now, I don't think anybody planned for the higher cost of hedging and so forth. That is taking some joy out of the bottom line because you're extracting that in a reserve from your net cash flow. And when people haven't plan for that. They're not paying press. They're walking backwards. They may have negative carry. That's when you start to get into trouble. Yeah. And what what's your overall sentiment um, just over with respect to rent growth? There were so many deals that would pencil using an assumption of fairly aggressive rent growth yeah. and what's your perspective now? Do you, and I know it's so market specific. Yeah. But just talking about it just generally on a macro level, how are you seeing rents today? Well, I see rents today as normalizing, but in many markets, you're getting what we call negative lease trade outs because mm. the rents were just a little artificially too high. COVID uh, from 20 to 22 inflated rents. Multifamily rents, if you look at a chart, you'll see it kind of moves steadily along. And then there's this huge hump. It's almost 20% over those years. And then it went back to normal, down a little bit, and it's flattening. So it's going to return to a, call it a normalized 3 to 5% organic growth. But a lot of markets are getting negative trade-outs. Markets like Austin, Texas, which are just simply overbuilt, and the overhang of new Class A is pushing its way into suburban Class B pricing. Yeah. What uh, I mean, there's such a two thirds of my deals, I would say, even though we're sitting here in Century City in Los Angeles, two thirds of the deals we work on are outside of California. Right. Uh, and and know, you will see more of that. You, you can open a Dallas office, right? We should. And, uh, and an Orlando office, right? Uh, Nashville, uh, Atlanta, the Carolinas. Yeah. Um, well, LA, LA and California have its, their own unique issues that make being a landlord much more challenging than they ever were. So, I mean, you live here, you're, and I want to get into community and, yeah. and, and philanthropy and, but, and, and, and I know you're not from here. I want to get yeah. into where you're from and your background, but 
what what just the state that um, uh, that so many of your you and your peers choose to live here. The, well, usually the weather is good, but not this past week in LA. But we just don't want to do business here. It's just right. not a business friendly climate. Have you been speaking with government officials in LA, in California, and letting them know how challenging it is to do business here and that you have been focusing your efforts um, as you're a steward of capital in buying deals outside of California? And yeah. it just, it should, you know. Yeah. So, so I, I have a little different view of it all because I think life is a do-it-yourself program. Mm -hmm. If you sit around and wait, you're going to find yourself in a disgruntled position when things don't go your way. Yeah. So I got out in front of that seven years ago. I saw the handwriting of the difficulty of doing business here, and I moved my center of gravity. Although I have the largest segment of my 60,000-unit portfolio, 13,000 units are in California. Mm -hmm. I started that migration long before this problem started. So I'm not feeling as much of the pain. I have continued to divest of holdings in Los Angeles. I have not been a net buyer, but every county and city in California is different. We were a big net buyer in San Diego. Mm -hmm. We've been a net buyer in Orange County. We love Ventura County and, and those places. It's, it's LA city where the government here has moved so far away from business that's made it very hard and particularly in real estate exacerbated by the the covid related issues which there's a there's a huge conflation between affordable housing and homelessness and normalization of a rental relationship between a landlord and a renter 95 percent of the people that rent apartments pay their rent, they're good, God-fearing people, they do what they say they're going to do, and there's no issue. The problem is caused, and the, and the, 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 the highlight from the political establishment is focused on this bottom portion of the demographic, which is struggling. And as a result, their solution has been to implement either draconian rent control, draconian eviction moratoria, and layers and layers of regulation as opposed to addressing whatever that social problem is, whether it's, um, you know, affordable housing, there's different terms, the missing middle, and encouraging development, which would then create more supply or government-related programs to help people that are really indigent or simply are on the street already homeless, which we have a big problem in L.A., but we've conflated a lot of those problems and placed them onto the onto the back of the American landlord, in this case, California. Yeah, I mean, there's a, so it's a big problem. Yeah, that that the American landlord and specifically the L.A. landlord has been under attack, uh, virtually under attack. And so based on what you just said, I know how politically involved you are and I've been at events at your house. Uh, do you have conversations with politicians uh, with respect to your feelings, which your feelings are shared by others in this business? I, 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 I do. Um, but 
I'll be honest with you. It's going to take more than conversation. We have to make a change in, in, in the electorate here in order to do that. We have, um, we're not prosecuting petty crime. Um, I think Karen Bass has done a pretty good job mm-hmm. on moving to take steps to eradicate the, the blighted aspect of homelessness. She's working on, you know, the housing solutions. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. But so there are good things that are happening, but they, we continue to bring down regulations every time an incident occurs and so forth. So as a result of that, the landlord is hamstrung. And if we keep going in this direction, people are not going to invest in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. They're not going to want to build a new building, let alone buy an older building and, and rehabilitate it which only will exacerbate the very issue they're trying to solve. Yes. They they need to work from the inside out, not from the outside in. Yes. And measures such as ULA doesn't help. No, you're just hurting the transactional GDP that's created. Mm-hmm. You're just keeping everybody on the sidelines. Real estate transactions create legal fees, escrow fees, debt fees. They employ people. Broker fees. Broker fees. Mm-hmm. The people that spend consumer dollars that in, in an economy. Absolutely. Um, so I want to go back to when uh, you were starting out. Yeah. Um, so talk about, uh, you know, where did you grow up and how did you get into the real estate business? Um, started as a hobby. I grew up in the Boston area. Um, I grew up in a a, a northern suburb of Boston called Chelsea, Mass. It's the smallest city in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, overshadowed by what's called the Tobin Bridge, the Mystic River Bridge that bisects the city that was built in the 1950s. So kind of a, was a very nice suburb at the turn of the last century, but it was really uh, more of a, a, there was a lot of urban flight from there. And as a result, it was a, a poorer community when I was growing up there in the, in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, I, I was kind of a street kid. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, Not a Southie because you were from the North End. You know, I was in the Southie. <laughs> no, no, no. But, uh, Not you, as thick of an accent. No, yeah, well, it's dissipated. But you kind of stayed in your own neighborhood in yeah. Boston. Boston was very balkanized. You some days. fights as a kid? Yeah, I had a few. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few. You learned to defend yourself. Sure. Um, so I grew up in that kind of a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, I didn't go to summer camp or any of those things. I was just sent out to the street to make my way and come back at night, hopefully. Yeah. So I, I you know, and I put myself through college. I uh, was, you know, my, my, my father was a postal worker. So I went to a private school. I went to a WPI, which is an engineering school in Worcester, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and got a partial scholarship and earned the rest through summer jobs. I, I, uh, I did that for, you know, for four years and finally got a degree and got a nice little job offer that led me to Southern California. What was that? My first job as an engineer was uh, with a company in Wisconsin called Train Air Conditioning Corporation. So I went to the, into their commercial uh, technical sales force and I was assigned to the Los Angeles office. Hmm. So that was my ticket to freedom. Wow. Yeah. So so you ended up here. Uh, yeah. Long way away from uh, the north side of Boston. Uh, and so then 
was there, you said real estate was a hobby. So you were working as an engineer and would buy real estate on the side? Or? Uh, a little later. I it, it took a while to figure out. I had always been interested in real estate, even when I was studying engineering, but I had no clue how to get into it. Yeah. I even studied for like the broker's exam in Massachusetts. Mm. But, you know, getting a private education in engineering, there were a lot of job offers. I was fortunate. So I took it. I got a good job and I worked in engineering for a couple of years. I mean, I've always I've always enjoyed living in Southern California. I lived in the South Bay in Hermosa Beach uh, and really, really could really started to spread my wings out here. And I went back to uh, to, to graduate school. I, I went to UCLA Anderson Business School. Mm -hmm. So when I finished there in 83, I started working again, but not in real estate. I worked in entertainment briefly really? with the Walt Disney Company for three and a half years. And I started to make enough money where I could make small investments. Mm -hmm. And that's how it really started. So in 1987, I closed my first small real estate deal at the age of 29, which was just a, a duplex in Venice. Sure. Yeah. Did you have investors? I, uh, I, I know, but I, I had a lot of, uh, borrowed funds from buddies. Uh -huh. I, uh, I mean, if I even told you the pricing today, you'd think you think you bought two houses on a lot for $157,000 then, but had to cobble together, you know, 20 grand, including closing costs. Yeah. And so I think I maybe I had half of it myself and I, I don't know if I took some of it from friends or got it off credit cards, but I figured it out. Sure. And, I'm, and I assume very little, if any, documentation with your friends and no, IOUs no. and yeah. figure out the interest rate. And yeah. I, you know, it just worked out. And um, the seller of that property uh, was a very nice person from Michigan, and he guided me through the whole transaction. It didn't help having an MBA or an engineering degree. You need to have knowledge and common sense about a transact a simple piece of real estate so that was kind of the spark of my i entered real estate kind of as i said as more like a hobbyist entrepreneur sure. than a prof career professional mm -hmm. and after about seven years of doing that but also working through the very first cycle i had to encounter Although when I graduated college, you know, it was during the Reagan years where interest rates were with Paul Volcker, like 20%. I didn't, I was oblivious to it because I was not a homeowner or anything. Mm -hmm. So once you become a homeowner and a real estate owner, you start to get sensitive about economic cycles. So that was the first one, which was the RTC crisis, where the deregulation of thrift and loans mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s led to a disaster in the mm -hmm. 90s where you know, basically we had to take over all these small banking institutions and it tanked the real estate market. Southern California was going through its own problems because the recession exacerbated uh, things here. You had the earthquake. Yeah, the 94 Northridge. You had the decline in aerospace. Mm -hmm. You had the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. You had all these world events that had some effect on the local economy here. So it was a pretty tough time. Yeah, yeah the riots. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so that what you, so that was happening. And, and then what, what was the impetus to make real estate? Yeah. So, career? yeah. So I found myself in a position where I was 
too exposed, a little bit over leveraged. Mm -hmm. So I had to teach myself how to communicate with banks and work through some of my own portfolio. Mm -hmm. So that's where I really learned what it was like to be on that side of, 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 the, of the table. And by the way, you learn more in humbling times sure. than you do in positive times. Yeah, someone told me uh, you, you gain confidence with success, but you learn from your failures. You do. And those, that, that was a tougher time in my, my, my development. Um, and so finally, by 93 or so, I felt I needed to actually get a job. I couldn't just invest. You know, if I could just put a yeah. pin in that, where you we've been talking about relationships and 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 you speaking yeah. with your your lenders, where yeah. you could just go to the community bank and have a conversation. Right. Um, here, where uh, today, when loans, whether it's Fannie, Freddie, or 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 other lenders that um, uh, sell off <coughs> their loans, yeah. and you're dealing with servicers, and you've never met them in person, it's such a different era. It is. Back then, it's like you cannot just walk down the street no. and. Uh, but have you have to work harder. You have to dig deeper. If you don't get a call back, you have to make one back, and you can't give up. Mm -hmm. And you have to make knowing the name of the person and who they are as important as the matter that you're trying to solve. And again, I'm not being critical of younger people, but I find a lot of situations where I'll ask questions to people on one of my teams, and I say, "Oh, we did this or that." I said, "Well, who did you talk to?" Um, I'm not sure. Let me look that up. Okay. Yeah. So I think you, you constantly have to connect with the people on the other side of the phone or, or, you know, whoever it is that you're, you're dealing with. So, so basically I was an entrepreneur converted that into a profession basically. So real estate was kind of like my call it my second career. Mm -hmm. I started doing, um, workouts in the, in the 90s and I joined a team that was formed by the trustees that seized executive life insurance company. So executive life was taken over by the state of California by John Garamendi, the insurance commissioner, and basically was put into conservatorship. Fred Carr, the, the head of executive life, had been a very big investor in high yield junk bonds with Michael Milken. Mm -hmm. And when Drexel got pulled down, executive life got pulled down by the insurance industry because the perception was these junk bonds were worthless. The balance sheet of the company was upside down. And they wouldn't be able to support their policy obligations. But how do you how do you even be in a position to have that opportunity when real estate was a hobby? And that this seems yeah. like an unbelievable yeah. opportunity. It was an unbelievable opportunity. And what I'm using the word hobby because I didn't consider it a profession then. Sure. I knew a lot yeah. from just engaging and, and transacting, but I never worked in the field mm -hmm. and uh, a good friend of mine uh, was working at that insurance company, which became a trust. And basically I asked him for a job and I said, you know, he said, I'll bring you in as a consultant because I knew a lot enough about multifamily by then. And I knew enough about the basics and they needed help. And sometimes 99% of success occurs from showing up. I showed up, I took a very, very modest, uh, hourly wage, I ended up getting exposed to a huge opportunity to basically what happened was I, I was the, became the director of, of the real estate enhancement trust. 
And so I liquidated an asset managed to liquidation over a billion dollars of real estate in a period of four years. And that was all done through a court supervised process. It was all world-class institutional real estate that was owned with partners. There were a lot of litigation. Um, it was really uh, the, one of the greatest learning laboratories one could ever want to have. Sure. And, you know, I was dealing with people from John Kluge to Sam Zell. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so you did your job. You liquidated that real estate. Yeah. And I learned through the pro I learned yeah. as I was going along. And then what was. And a lot of the attorneys were helpful, by the way. Well, I'm glad. Attorneys are good. They could be your one, friend. Once in a while. Yeah. Uh, the ones that are deal makers, not the yeah. ones that are deal breakers. Yeah. And then what? So after you had this opportunity. I did for that for years. four years mm -hmm. working with the, the trustees and the operatives within executive life. And I was, like I said, the, the, the pivot person uh, behind the scenes. Um, there was nothing else to do. You were actually worked yourself out of a job. Right. That's like I said, you, you were successful in doing yeah. uh, post Lehman. I was uh, part of the cleanup crew who was responsible for liquidating their assets. I was one of the law firms and, once you liquidated everything, that was it. You're yeah, done. You're done. Yeah. So by then, 96, 97, the markets were recovering. So I felt comfortable starting to invest again. I got back on the investment train, buying deals from my own account or with partners. And so I also took another job. I went to work with Heitman Capital, the Chicago-based firm, sure. one of the older pension fund advisors in the country who needed skill sets in a special situations group there to do workouts and dispositions. So I spent another three years working through that book with my colleagues there. And as I got, again, sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart of being in the right place. Heitman had divested their property management business to Kennedy Wilson. Kennedy Wilson at the time was an auction company emerging into an investment company mm -hmm. and was building a service platform. Um, and they acquired Heitman's property management business and consolidated their operations from Santa Monica into Beverly Hills in the same suite where I was located as an asset manager. And uh, basically got to know the people there through that affinity. Mm -hmm. And when I had nothing left to work on at Heitman, I basically put my stuff on a dolly, dragged it down the hall, and started making acquisitions at Kennedy Wilson. He said, look, I'm here. I'm uh, here. Give me a small salary and I'll I'll do my deal. Wow. Yeah. And so how long were you at Kennedy Wilson? 13 and a half years. Mm -hmm. And during that time you saw uh, the GFC. Uh, yeah. You but experienced. From, yeah, but before that, in the buildup uh, between 2000 and call it 2009, sure. I grew that multifamily business into a company within a much larger public company. We built Kennedy Wilson multifamily. Uh, I started doing uh, JV transactions with institutions and really built that into a vertically integrated business with 3 billion of assets by the time I left 13 and a half years later with operations in both the Western United States and in Japan. And then Kennedy Wilson was going into Ireland as sure. I was leaving. And yeah. I got a little involved with that, but did not see that through. That was, you know, under a different leadership. Um, and so I, that's where I really, 
you know, define my ability to run more of a, a company, if mm-hmm. you will. How, I mean, whether it's a Kennedy Wilson, yeah. here, True America, you've built such incredible platforms, incredible portfolios, but incredible companies. There's the real estate side of business. Yeah. And then there's the company side, the employee right. side. How involved are you in the inner workings of the company versus the involvement of acquisitions, financings, and capitalization of real estate? Yeah. These things are mutually exclusive, and real estate companies are typically flat organizations. They're not hierarchical organizations. So I just view myself as the team leader. Yeah. I have to pick the team, nurture the team, and give the team a lot of line, a lot of latitude to grow. And I've always picked people that I thought had that ability. Um, you're not right all the time, uh, but you, you you learn as you move along. And so it's all about people like any other business. I tend to get pretty involved because my DNA is in asset management and in acquisitions. And I enjoy the field aspect of real estate. Mm-hmm. But when you're running a company with 16 billion of assets and 17 states and 60,000 units, uh, you're going to have a lot of people things that you have to deal with. Sure. And procedural things to deal with and compliance issues. and The annoying things. The annoying things. That's <laughs> why you have to have a CAO uh-huh. and people like Noah and Mark Enfield and, yeah, no, and so I get forth. It. I, I run a law firm. We've got, what, 65, 70 people, uh, half of whom are attorneys. And uh, I am good. I know what I'm good at. And I'm good at yeah. practicing law and making deals happen and structuring transactions. And I'm not as good in, 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 in the running of uh, dealing with those in employment issues. And so you need... It's not as much fun. No, and you need an executive. For us, we need non-legal professionals to help us run the law firm. Right. So I would assume it's maybe similar in, in a real estate company? Um, it is, but, you know, we have a very strong HR organizational development department that's been very good at helping us build culture and systems for dealing with people's needs and benefits and so forth and performance management. But ultimately, in, in a real estate company, the, you know, the senior team and the various project leaders are all very much involved in their people oversight and yeah. but it's it's that's the difference though with real estate it's not like a like uh, like you're working for ibm or apple computer it's very flat mm-hmm. no I, I i i agree with that so with... i work directly with our analysts and our yep our asset our asset managers and our construction folks and not day to day but in 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 the things i need to sure and so why true america what what prompted yeah you wanting to create this company? Again, sometimes things happen uh, for a reason and it can be serendipitous in a way. I was doing very well in my career at Kennedy Wilson. I'd become president of the business that I created and grew it nicely. And, you know, I had a very, I think, good relationship with my mentor, Bill McMorrow there. Um, However, it wasn't quite enough. Um, It wasn't, my company per se, and it wasn't solely focused on housing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to build a company that uh, would be very much focused on housing. And I wanted to make that company national. 
And so I had an opportunity to do that uh, because one of the investors uh, at Kennedy Wilson was a company called Guardian Life Insurance, who was an investor in my deals there. And I got to know the people there quite well. And uh, they asked me basically if I would consider forming this new company with them. Hmm. So it took me a couple of years to get comfortable with it. And I did that. Well, I remember, I think it was at the time when you were making the transition. Uh, uh, I've known Noah Hawkman since I don't know, 2008 or so, and we became good friends, went to travel to Israel together. And we, um, uh, he introduced me to you. Uh, we only met a few for a few minutes. I think it was at a cocktail party at the IMN private equity conference in Laguna. Yeah. And he was in the process of figuring out his next move. And after meeting you, uh, I said, Noah, I don't know what else you have on the table. <laughs> I think you need to go with Bob. Uh, <laughs> and then look now, 10 yeah. years later, I know you celebrate your 10th anniversary yeah. and how many units and how much under management. Uh, we've grown it to 60,000 units owned and under management. Um, we've built out the country across uh, the West, Central, Texas, and uh, Midwest, and, and, and also the East Coast from Florida, from Miami up to Boston. And that took 10 years to do that and to really build the infrastructure to support it. Um, and basically, you know, that's where we're at today. But we have bigger plans to grow the company in the future. We've become a, an institutional fund manager, and we're also diversifying into other areas that support housing. Sure. Um, when you started True America over 10 years ago, did you have a, a premonition that it would even be this size or your? No, no, I had no idea. In fact, I look back almost comically looking at the the, the initial business plans were much more modest than mm -hmm. I could have perceived today. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there are many different... Uh, I didn't know the markets, the opportunities were going to grow the way they did. What do you attribute that to? Uh, you mean the markets growing the way they did? Yeah. I think uh, multifamily as an asset class has become more and more uh, the class of choice mm -hmm among large institutions that invest in real estate, whether it's insurance companies or pension funds, certainly real estate investment trusts, and a lot of private equity. Mm -hmm. So the housing sector, particularly multifamily, and certainly industrial are two sectors that have really risen above, call it office and hotels and retail in terms of the percentage of dollars that are allocated toward it. We could talk for hours. I want to be respectful yeah. of your time. Um, just finishing up on a couple topics here. There are so many different, I would call them almost sub-asset classes or sub-product types within multifamily. Yeah. Uh, build for rent, affordable housing, maybe some other uh, yeah. categories. Uh, what is True America getting into? Well, True America um, is diversifying, like I told you, to complement our, not replace, but to complement sure. our, our class B multifamily rehab repositioning business. So we started a build for rent platform about a year and a half ago. Um, 
and we're continuing to nurture that and bring that along with staffing and, and transactions. Um, the market hasn't helped of late. Yeah. Development is, is constrained right now due to financing and decline of, of rents, but we have put two deals together in that area. We've built a team of six people and we're gonna to continue to modestly grow that and make that a part of our business. So we like to build for rent space. We think it we think that there's a a trend in America that will continue for higher and higher rentership for longer. We think that people in that twenty-five to thirty-five age range are gonna rent for longer. They're not gonna buy homes like they used to. Mm -hmm. And those homes that they want to live in have to be bigger as they become, you know, they have bigger families, they have pets, and they just want to define a different choice rather than living in a, a, you know, a boxy apartment. And I think that is going to make the aggregation of a rental community in the form of houses or built for rent more popular. Yeah. Um one last topic I want to get into, and that's your not just involvement, but you roll up your sleeves in helping the community. And I feel uh, I've been to so many different events of yours from uh, the Chrysalis uh, organization uh, to City of Hope to Jewish Federation. I'm probably missing some. Um, how, how do you? How, I guess the, the initial question with respect to philanthropy is, you know, how did you get into it and, and, and why do you spend so much time uh, on philanthropy? Yeah, um, I think when I when I was starting out, even in high school, I was always involved in some kind of community service, mm -hmm. whether it be uh, at a very local level. Um, and I've always enjoyed that. It, it's like a some people like to play golf on Sundays. So I like to be involved with community service. Yeah. Now, and I don't want to paint the picture that, that that was my advocation, but it's something that I enjoy. I enjoy that. I think it enhances your life. Sure. You meet people in a different way, or maybe, you know, like when I first came to LA in the in the 80s, I got involved with the LA Junior Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a great organization. They had been involved in sponsoring for years a basketball tournament um, which commemorated the Watt Summer Games. I chaired that one year and got involved and got to know a lot of the Laker players that grew up in L.A. and, and Jerry Buss and so forth. That was a very fulfilling thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always found outlets for my interest in that area when I was in Anderson School, and after I graduated, I was very involved with the Alumni Association there, and I became president of their Global Alumni Association, and I then converted what I'll call the networking aspect or of community service to the fundraising aspect of it, and that's how I got involved with Chrysalis. I wanted to incorporate something into my, you know, day-to-day -day that would be a more of a direct impact to people in the community. Not just listening to lectures or politicians, but actually doing something. Yeah. And so Chrysalis, uh, they really do God's work. They're a Skid Row-based organization that takes people that are emerging from homelessness 
and helps retrain them for work. And they take somewhere over 3,000 people a year off the streets of Southern California and get them jobs. It's an amazing organization. I, I've been to the events, uh, and I know, um, and we talked about this. I know they, they, uh, um, you have them at one of your corporate retreats, yes. and I'm going to have them at a YPO event of ours that's um, centered around families and kids and introducing kids to philanthropy and the charity that we're going to introduce them to is is, is Chrysalis well, because of the wonderful. great work that they. They do. they do good work and really when you're transcending your colleagues and your family in the midst of the family of those that have far greater needs i think it creates growth i mean i've I, some of the best moments i've had in my involvement with chrysalis has been participating or talking with their clients the people that have worked very hard because of bad circumstances to overcome either drug addiction, criminal records, and a lot of societal problems that we don't touch every day. And they, it, it's been very transformative. Yeah, it's an amazing organization. Um, all right, last question, yeah. because I, I definitely want, I'm so appreciative of your time. Um, a, a college grad, comes into your office, says, Bob, Mr. Hart, what should I do? How do I become you? How do I build true America? Um, and maybe that answer, I'm curious, is the answer that you're about to give, is it different today in 2024 versus when you started your career, just based on the markets and, and how people are? Yeah, there's no, um, there's no exact formula. I mean, I think success and career progression is cumulative. It's, it's no different than investing in real estate. It's not, you know, people say, Oh, how can I own that many apartments? Well, it's, it's not a get rich quick business. Mm -hmm. It's gradual. It's progressive. It's America. So one thing I tell people, particularly those that want to start out as an investor, I said, well, put some skin in the game, go raise some money from your friends and family, go buy some real estate. Mm -hmm. That'll put you, it creates a visceral reaction. Uh, I think that, you know, people need to start out and spend time doing something, whether it be if you wanna be a, an operative in real estate or you wanna be an investor in real estate, you've gotta make the time investment and stick around long enough to learn something. I think that's what I try to encourage people. Don't job jump. What can you do to help make your company better? I've had people come to me in referrals and say, well, you know, I've, I'm a little bored with my job or I want to become this title. I said, really? I said, what are you doing to help your current company so you can achieve that? And you hear, you hear silence on the other end of the phone. So what I try to encourage people to do is to get on whatever track they're on, stick with it a while, and then make progress that leads to leadership that then leads to these greater things in their career. It doesn't happen from the one conversation with me or anybody else. You got to get knocked around a few times. Yes. And it's how, how, how you deal with when, when you have failure, when you have headwinds, it's yeah. easy. It's easy when things yeah. are just roses. Yeah. Um, well, you're, you were a baseball player, right? Yeah. In college, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
How many times did you strike out before you hit a base hit? Yeah, too many. My coach would tell you way too many times. <laughs> sure. But you got back at bat every single time. Look, if, if, if you can't accept failure as a baseball player where one out of three times you get a base hit, you're in the Hall of Fame, then that's a very humbling no. sport to play. So my place in the community in real estate was cumulative. It, it, took, it took just a lot of gradual steps. Yeah. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough. We could sit here all day. Um, uh, I appreciate you know you being a friend, a client, uh, uh, just a confidant, a peer, a, a, a leader in this community and in the industry. Thank you for coming on, and uh, best of luck to the the next version. I guess I don't want to say next we, version. We call it True America 3.0. There you go, True America 3.0. We'll we'll have another episode of the podcast. Perfect. We'll see how 3.0 is. All right. Well, you're here as part of the ride. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to have you. Great to be here. You've been listening to Real Talk, Real Estate Discussions with Andrew Kirsch. You can catch prior episodes at scalarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and for sharing the show with others.